0: Yeah, good morning. If you're visiting, we're glad you're here. I'm one of the shepherds, one of the elders here at Capital City Church. My name is Rick Martinez, and I'm blessed to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, We are going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're teaching through it. And we have entitled it, the overarching theme of the whole study is not of this world, Believing that as Christians, we have been called and we've been, we've been born from above. We've been born of God. And because we've been born of God, we are not of this world. And that sounds just kind of like a nice, catchy phrase you could kind of use to describe the Christian life. But it is a reality. It is a very true statement that in, in a very real, very true, very actually experiential way, Christians, as they begin to live this life of following Christ, come to understand increasingly that because we've been born from above, we are not of this world. We are from, in a sense, we've been born from another world by the Spirit of God, by the life of Jesus Christ. And for my teaching this morning, as I'm going to be looking at this text in Matthew chapter 7, I should have asked you last Sunday to read Pilgrim's Progress this week. Because if you'd have read Pilgrim's Progress this week, I wouldn't have taught at all. I would have just said, okay, let's talk about the book. How many of you have read that book, Pilgrim's Progress? I'm sure most of you have. I don't know if you know, there's a kid's book of it, too, that Kath has read to our grandkids, to our kids and our grandkids. It's an excellent book for those of you that are think like kids. Um, and a graphic, novel of it too. a graphic novel of it now, too. I think there's a movie that actually came out, too, that I just saw uh advertise as well. So I'm not sure how good that is. I won't recommend it. But yeah, I'm going to look at Matthew 7, verses 12 through 14, and uh, very familiar, very familiar verses. So if you would open your Bibles with me to chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 12 through 14, I'll read them, and then we'll pray. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also... To them, interesting in translation in the ESV, not for them, but to them. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. For that, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Father, in Jesus' name, this morning, we thank you for the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to separate and divide between thoughts and even the intents of our heart. And we thank you this morning for these words that the Lord Jesus spoke. They are familiar words, in some sense, Father, too familiar. Because when we've heard them, we think we already know them. We ask you to speak to us and teach us today by your spirit, Lord, from your word. Thank you for the church gathered this morning. We come to you. Thank you for the grace of God that is at work among us. Strengthen us and build us up today, Father into the dwelling place of Christ on the earth. And we thank you and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Actually, before I start looking at this text, I'm going to tell you something I sensed this morning as we were taking communion. I felt that what the Lord just reminded me as we were taking communion this morning for future thinking, future reference, is that every time we take communion, we are, in a sense, confessing again our faith in Christ. Baptism is an opportunity to confess it, that we've come, into some, we've come into a truth of Jesus Christ once and for all. We confess that, we are baptized, and it is a public proclamation and declaration of faith. Wonderful. So important, so needed. But it's almost as though in my mind, every single Sunday, as I take communion, and we take communion every Sunday, I believe and I feel like I'm confessing again my faith. Not in order to be saved. Don't misunderstand me. To, in a, to my own heart saying, I do believe this. I believe in Christ. I believe in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. I receive it again. I receive the cleansing again. It's wonderful, isn't it? Every single week we have the opportunity, in a sense, to renew our faith. There may be no more culturally combustive, looking for the right adjective. Did you say that word? There may be no more culturally combustive text than these that we are going to talk about today. I was thinking this week, as I was studying and praying, I was thinking, you know, so many people in the world and so many philosophers and learned men and religious men quote Jesus because they think he was, they say he was a great prophet, which in a sense, obviously, we know that it's true. But these are verses they'll never quote. They'll quote the golden rule. But they won't quote the narrow gate. (laughs) They don't quote those. Those are they stay away from those. And those are going to be, we're going to look at those in a moment. Those are probably the two most offensive statements that Jesus made in all of his teachings. And today they are probably the most contested, the most... uh, resisted of all of Jesus's sayings. And I also feel like for us as believers, they might be the point of the greatest warfare for our faith. And we'll talk about why in a moment. They are maligned. They are ignored. They are distorted. They are discarded by both the believing and the unbelieving, sadly. And the reason is, is because The opposite is what represents today's today's thinking in terms of the way. And these words that we're going to look at this morning are the greatest enemy to today's culture. The words narrow and the words hard in terms of a life that is to be lived in faith. Um, But we need to define them all, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at the golden rule first. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. It is very familiar, very obvious. I will say this, though, that these verses, verse 12, which we call the golden rule, was quoted often by the ancients as well. Jesus probably was not the first one to quote this, but I will say to you that he was probably the first one to quote it the way that he did. Because normally it was spoken in a negative sense. And it was spoken this way, don't do to others what you don't want them doing to you. But Jesus turned it around to a positive, said, do for others, do to others what you want them to do to you. He totally changed the thinking and the application of it. And if you know, we looked at this previous is that this follows immediately on the heels of of the previous verse, which spoke of the goodness of God, of the goodness of the Father, of how the Father delights to give his children good things. So this is really the law of love in Jesus' own words, loving God and loving our neighbor. And we've been talking through this series on living discriminately, on on living our lives distinctively, of looking different and, and living differently than everyone else around us. Not trying to be different, not trying to be strange, not saying that at all, but simply because of who we really are. And if we really purpose to live our lives the way that the Lord Jesus has called us to live them, we will be distinct and we will be different. And there must be an ability for us to then have discernment and to live discriminately And if we seek to live discriminately, we must seek to live with wisdom in this life, to live with grace toward others in this life. We've already looked at the judging portion of this Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to review it, but we talked about that already, living with wisdom. So Jesus is telling us here that we need to learn how to do for others, to do to others, What we ourselves would have and desire them to do for and to us. And I will say to you that he includes, and we'll look at this now from Luke's account of the same words that we are to do this even with those with whom we disagree, and even those whom we may feel and believe are living wrongly, living sinfully. Can I use that word? Living in sin. Look what Luke says about it, chapter 6. Luke 6 is his account of these same words. He puts them in a little bit of a different context. Verse 31. As you wish that others would do to you, Luke 6, 31, do so to them. And then he adds this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he, this is wonderful, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. That's the context If Luke's account of these same words. So when we hear these words of doing to others, he's not talking about just to people you agree with. He's not talking just about your family whom you love or our church family whom we love. He's talking about anyone, anywhere, anytime. Even those whom we disagree with, treat them the way you want to be treated. And I would add this, give the benefit of the doubt to people when possible. Believe the best of people. Let's not believe the worst immediately. It's so easy to do in our culture, isn't it? Everything's politicized. Everything is so divisive. Everything is so, uh, you know, explosive now. Let's give one another grace. Let's give one another the benefit of the doubt. Let's not dwell on petty differences. But let's do for others what we would want them to do to us. When we speak, we must speak the truth boldly, clearly, but listen, but in love speak words that are gracious and kind and loving because we know that even truth spoken in love can hurt sometimes. So we're not wanting to hurt. We're not wanting to separate. We're wanting to bring reconciliation to hearts, to bring people to God, to bring reconciliation between God and man. And so in the context of speaking to those who are not believers perhaps, who, who are living ways that, that we would not agree with, ways that we would call sinful, ways that might even be disgusting in some sense to us, can we find grace and humility to speak to them kindly, lovingly, the way that we would want to be spoken to? This is what Jesus is saying. Because the Father is kind, even he said, to the evil, amazing. Amazing. How is he kind to the evil? Because they live in this glorious, beautiful world. And the goodness of God fills this world every day. The grace of God, the common grace of God that every man, woman, and child is always exposed to is the goodness and the love of God for mankind. So we too must be that kind of people, patient, long-suffering, and merciful, speaking truth, not compromising, but speaking it kindly and lovingly. Amen. And then he goes on and he follows the heel on the heels of this talking about the narrow gate and the narrow way. And he speaks of this difficult walk that we have been called to walk. And again, this is not a popular subject mostly even in in churches where we don't want people to think that to be a believer is going to be Anything other than great blessing and prosperity and health, it's such a, it's a a false gospel that preaches that. The truth is, is that we've been called to walk a walk that has an entrance that is very narrow to get into, and a path then that follows that is not easy, but Jesus says is hard. Now I'm going to define what I mean by that in a moment because we can misunderstand it. But he said opposite that the entrance that leads to destruction, there is another way and an entrance into it, he said that leads to destruction is very, very wide and its path is easy. So we have some great words of contrast in these two verses, narrow and wide, hard and easy, life and destruction. These are Jesus's words that he chooses to use. Narrow and wide, hard and easy, life and destruction. Don't you wish the Lord had given us some other options? Don't you wish there was a middle ground, another gate that was just not as narrow and a path that was not as hard, but it didn't lead to destruction? Well, that's exactly what the world wants us to Believe is the truth. That's exactly what, what is, 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 is put forth by, by most of those who do not have the faith that we hold. That they're, listen, this is common to us. There are many ways to define truth. In fact, there are many truths. There are many different paths that all lead to God. And that we could go through whatever gate we choose to go through. And we can walk whatever path we choose to walk. After all, who is to tell you what path you should walk? And above all, that that path should lead to self-discovery. And above all, and ultimately, self-fulfillment. That those are the highest values. That those are the things that are most important for mankind is what is being emphasized in the world in which we're living. And we know that this is being increasingly becoming the mandate of the world in which we live. This is the the drumbeat of the world in which we live. What is truth? Truth is relative. Who is God? He's whomever you make him to be, or she is whomever you make her to be. There are many paths, there are many truths, and whatever is best for you is the one you should walk. That is the mantra today of the world in which we're living increasingly. So for us, that's why these verses become probably the point of greatest warfare, not only because we are going to be maligned or misunderstood or falsely accused if we hold to them, but also because we're going to be tempted not to hold to them, because it's going to be increasingly more and more hard to to say, "I, I don't want to be seen to be narrow. I don't want to be seen to to be exclusive. Uh, This is too hard. And so we are going to have to understand what Jesus means and gain an understanding by the grace of God, hopefully, today. As I was studying and reading this week, I came across an article, and there was a question that was asked of a number of people, of, of people that were writers. And the question was this, in your opinion, which religion is the most enlightened? So there were many answers, and one woman in particular who was a very articulate writer answered this way, and I'm going to read some a portion of what she answered, if you listen to me. She said, simply put, I don't think any one religion has all the answers, or that any one ideology offers the key to enlightenment. Now, you've heard that before, haven't you? She goes on to say this, to me, it comes down to a possibility of a metaphysical reality, metaphysical reality, which individuals on occasion glimpse, and it can take on a variety of forms. So now we're in, in a metaphysics now. She goes on to say shamans throughout history from many cultures claimed to contact this sublime reality on a regular basis. And so did certain priests, And spiritual individuals and anointed ones, consecrated women and holy holy men. But interestingly, she says, so have everyday contemporary people who have taken psychoactive drugs in controlled research studies. So she's gone now into all sorts of different things to, to experience a metaphysical, what she calls a metaphysical reality. But then she goes on, and I found this to be really interesting. She says, personally, over the decades of thinking hard about this topic, so she's been thinking about it. This is not a casual answer. She says, I've developed five basic criteria to judge the efficacy of religions or ideologies. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you her five things. The first is this. Does the religion or sect emphasize subservience, obedience, and worship? over change, discovery, and developing self-mastery. Did you hear that? Does it emphasize subservience, worship, and obedience, over change, discovery, and developing self-mastery? So here we're finding a key that we're going to see now from Jesus' words that he's going to absolutely address. Is the goal of the life that we live, self-mastery, Is it self-discovery, and is it bringing about positive change for our lives? So Subservience in her mind and obedience and worship were seen to be negative compared to the others. Common, common, common in our culture. Second criteria, does the religion or sect treat atheists and apostates with basic human decency and respect? Good question. And I would say, we would say to the same thing that she would say. Yes, we believe it must. Okay, we're on the same page with that one. One out of two so far. Third criteria, does the religion focus intently, this is tricky one, does the religion focus intently on the inner spiritual life, or does it focus on the outer physical life? Now some of you might go, Yeah, Christianity is all about the inner spiritual life. But what she's talking about is is that there's never going to be then anything that is visible outwardly. That's, That's a lower priority than what happens inwardly. And the Word of God absolutely contradicts that because James tells us, as do many other texts, that your faith is proven by your works. That Jesus Christ said that the life you live must be manifest in good works, in obedience. That it's visible. That what you believe becomes visible. And so the the question is a trick question in some sense. Because it seems like the priority is on the inner spiritual life. Which obviously we know Christianity begins with an inner spiritual life awakening by the Spirit of God, a rebirth, which is inner, but it manifests itself in the way we live. Paul speaks of conversation, our conversation of the life, of the the, wa- the walk, the way that we walk in this world. So we would not agree that it's just an inner spiritual reality. reality. The fourth criteria. Does the religion or ideology practice inclusiveness, here's a good one, tolerance, and provide value for the broadest range of people, even for those who don't believe in a God? She goes on to say this regarding that. She says, looking at mankind through a cosmic time lens as if humanity is a long-term multi-millennial project Any ideology ideology which can provide value to the widest group of people possible is going to be the most pragmatic and the most useful. Because an ideology which says our way is the only way goes about alienating and dividing people, which is not going to be an optimal ideology for mankind. So here's where the rub is with Christianity. Here's where the rub is with these words that Jesus speaks is that it is seen to be, it's not pragmatic, it is, is not an a, 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 a ideal approach for mankind to believe anything that would be exclusive and inclusive. It's not optimal for mankind, in her mind. In the same questionnaire where I was reading this, they asked a number of people, the, regarding the various religions, which ones they felt were the most enlightened? Which one? Guess which one was at the bottom. It was. Taoism and Buddhism were highest. Yeah, it's a flawed question. But but it's an interesting study of the way that the world processes what it means to have truth, to know truth. Her fifth criteria. Does the, re- the religion give a reason for our existence, which, here's a good one, which seems to be rational? And so her answer to it was this. Living several lives makes more logical sense than the idea that we only get one shot at being a good person. And if we suck too bad, you get to rot in hell. She said, I find the idea of reincarnation, which is we learn, we improve, we experience different situations via different lifetimes as a practical, and here's the word again, pragmatic approach for developing better humans, which I believe is the whole point of our existence to become better individuals and fulfill the highest potential you can. And I've said this many times, Christianity is, Jesus Christ did not come to change us. He came to offer an exchanged life, his life for my life. He didn't come to make me better. He came to begin anew with me. When I'm born again, he starts over. I I am born again. I'm born from above by the Spirit of God It's as though I'm a baby born out of my mother's womb and learning how to walk and learning how to talk and learning how to run and learning how to live. And I look at life now through completely different lenses. And every one of us who have come to a faith in Christ have to have had an experience where we've encountered the Spirit of God by the grace of God and we've believed upon Jesus Christ and we have been born again. You may not know when that happened. That's okay. That's not the point. But the point is, today, if you're in this room and you know that that's happened, that's the point. You are a new creation in Christ. And Jesus never came to make you better. He came to begin anew. He didn't come, he doesn't want us to to turn over a new leaf. He wants us to put on the new man. To live our life now in the faith, in the work of God in Christ. I believe the key to these verses, to understanding what Jesus is saying, now listen carefully, the key is how we define the word life. This is the key. Life is the issue of all that Jesus is saying. And so we must define the word life the way that he meant it. It is a Greek word. You've heard it before. It's zoe, Z-O-E. One of the young girls on the stage this morning. His name was Zoe. Life. And this is what it speaks of. It speaks of the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, the real and the genuine, a life that is active and vigorous. It is the word that is used for eternal life the life of God that is manifest and given to man in the New Testament. Because there are three different words for life that are used in the New Testament. Bios, B-I-O-S, we know what that root means. We've heard that from so many different words we use in English. When Jesus spoke of the anxieties and the pleasures of this life, he was speaking of that word, bios, the Greek word referring to the physical body. Where we get the word biology. Suke is another word for life. And Jesus speaks of that in Matthew 16. He says, Whoever who wants to save his suke, his life, shall lose it. It speaks of the soul life, the psychological life of the human being. The mind, the will, the emotions. It is where we get the word, obviously, psychology. But the word that is used in Matthew 7 is the word zoe. It's a different word. It's also the word that is used by John in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. In him was life, zoe, and the life was the light of men. And here that word refers to the uncreated, eternal life of God. The divine life that is uniquely possessed by the living God alone. And so Jesus says in John 10, 10, this very familiar statement, I have come to give you Zoe. And that life, he said, more abundantly. You see, this is the issue of the text in Matthew 7. It's the issue of life. It's what we understand life to be. And I'll say to us as believers, we must get a right thinking on this. Because if life to us is everything out there and what the world is offering, what the world is saying, what even our own, at times, our own desires are, we're missing the point of this. That's not what Jesus was speaking of. And that's where the false gospel gets it wrong. It isn't about having more and possessing more and gaining more and having a a good self-esteem and all of these things that are preached from pulpits all around the United States and even the world. It has nothing to do with that. It's speaking of a life that only God can give, that only God possesses and therefore can give to man. And so it's easy to deduce from this that the gate And the way to life that Jesus is speaking about is a life that only God can give, that the true and the only true and living God, there's only one alone, can give. You cannot gain, listen, you cannot gain this life, you cannot find this life, you cannot earn this life, you cannot buy this life. It can only be given because God gives it to you and he gives it to you he will he gives it to you out of his love and mercy and grace it is a gift from the god who raises the dead paul's view of this life is deeply deeply affected and was formed by the truth of the resurrection of jesus christ this was the the the, the main criteria for Paul's understanding of life. And he speaks of it beautifully, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He speaks of the fact that there's a resurrection from the dead, that Jesus Christ came from the dead, came back from the dead. And and this is the point. The fact that Jesus Christ is risen... And the fact that it is an accomplished fact proves the power, listen, of divine life over death. Now this is apologetics now. We're getting into into an argument for our faith. That the Christian faith is absolutely, it hinges, it it, it, it rises or falls on on the veracity of Christ's resurrection. Paul would say, even in that chapter, he says, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we of all people are the most to be pitied because our faith is built on a lie. And we have nothing. We're stooges, we're fools, we're ridiculous. But that's not the case. Christ did rise from the dead. He did raise from the dead. It is a fact And that fact proves that the life of God is greater than death. Because the apostle sees Jesus Christ as the very embodiment of God's living power, conquering death and raising the dead. So life in this context of Matthew 7 means Christ's everlasting life. Life from the dead and beyond the grave. The way in, he says, is narrow. And the way on it, he says, is hard. Now, I'll explain that in a moment. Through the resurrection, in Paul's thinking, Christ is the last Adam a whole bunch of theology I'm not going to have time to get into in that. Paul develops it in Romans chapter 5. He speaks of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But that's a powerful truth is that there was a first Adam who sinned and death came in through that man. And there is a second Adam who did not sin and through him has come life. He became the author of a new life. A new life for mankind, and I've said this, you're, you're tired of hearing it. I'll say it again. Jesus began over again. God began over again with mankind in Christ. There is a new humanity on the earth today. And it's those who have faith in Christ. God began over He tried with Noah. He wanted Noah to begin. Noah couldn't do it because Noah still had the seed of Adam in him. It had to be another kind of man. It had to be a man that was not of the earth, a man that was from heaven. And that man is Jesus Christ, God, who became a man. So Paul brilliantly, a revelatory phrase, calls him the last Adam. There was no longer a need for another Adam. Now we have the last Adam has come. So the life of the Christian now that we live, it's not our own life, but it's the life of Christ, Paul says. Christ lives in us, and we now live out of the life of Christ. Now, I don't fully understand that because I don't do it perfectly. I don't live my life fully. In the one sense, I do because I'm in Christ and because it is, it is an objective truth. But in a subjective experiential way, I don't live. I still fall in sin, unfortunately. But my life, Paul says, my life is hidden with Christ in God. There's something true now about my, my identity. And I'm, I'm, this, this new life has become the dominant feature of who I am. I look in the mirror every day and I go, oh my goodness, I'm getting older. But that doesn't negate the reality, the truth, that that the dominant characteristic of my life is life. I'm in Christ. I'm in his life. It's a resurrected life. I just have not yet experienced the fullness of it. That as I stand before you today, I say to you that I will one day. I will one day. Will you? Yes, if you have faith in Christ, you will. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 we're always carrying about in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. In our bodies, so this is the whole thought of her question: is 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 it an inner spiritual life only, or is it a physical, uh, outward expression of life? And so Jesus would say yes. Paul would say yes. It is both. The truth of the inner must be manifest in the outer. Our lives have been justified by Christ Romans 5:18 and by his life notice the words life by his life we will be saved Romans 5:10 we've been justified by his life and we will be fully saved at the consummation of the age by his life but unlike eastern religion and unlike all of the philosophies of men that are out there that speak of enlightenment and speak of of life as they understand it. The life of Christ is is mediated to Christians not as a power as with the Gnostics nor through mystical union like Eastern religions, but it is mediated by the regenerating creative power of the Spirit of God. It isn't some ethereal experience. Or that we encounter this life. It doesn't come through enlightenment, self enlightenment. It isn't through some deeper uh, knowledge gained. It is is given by the grace of God, and it is through the power of the Spirit of God regenerating a man, a woman, a young man, a young woman, a child. So we live in this continual paradox. The tension between the present and the future. This new life, his new life already exists, but it has not yet been fully manifest. But Jesus' resurrection is the pledge and the promise of our future resurrection. A resurrection, listen, that is unto eternal life. Where all of the imperfections and all of the pain and all of the tears and all of the sorrow and all of the sadness of this present creation will pass away when that life comes in its fullness once for all. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all died, listen, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Doesn't mean everyone will be saved. It means those who put their faith in Christ. There is no one in this room today who is outside of the grace of God. There is no sin in this room today that cannot be forgiven. There is nothing that any of us have done that is beyond the mercy of God. The life, though, is in Christ. And so we can see why the gate is narrow. We can see why this gate is narrow. Because this life is precious. This life is is not readily available through the world's offerings. It is through faith in God's provision alone. And, and And that alone is the means of taking hold of it. It's through the means by which God says that it can only be taken hold of. And that, he said, is through faith in Jesus Christ That is how you enter this life. You cannot enter it any other way. I am not saying that. God says it. And this is what the world, and this is what what the philosophers of the age and the enlightened ones do not want to believe and agree with, is that the, the, the way in is only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way in. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the door, literally, these are his words, I am the door into this life. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, 7. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of doors out there, but only one leads to life. And that is because Christ alone, Christ alone has been resurrected from the death. He alone has overcome death. And he alone, listen, is the one who is yet living. And he alone is the one who can give that life to men. It's only through him. And he goes on, and I'm going to wrap this up quickly, but I need to say what he meant by hard. He said, the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The word means narrow. The word hard means narrow. It means compressed, or it means crushed, like you crush grapes when they make wine. That's what the word narrow means. This is the second great offensive statement of Christ. The first was that the way in is small and narrow. And now he says the way is hard. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, which a lot of us have, you know that the way in was narrow and then the path was not a straight path, though. It was a curvy, windy path because that's living life in this world as a believer. The way in is small and the way on is hard. And this is is the verse that, Uh, uh, why so many people mischaracterize the Christian faith because Jesus, even Jesus himself said that it is narrow and it is hard. But remember what I said a minute ago, he also said this is the way to true life. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, you know, I would have to say that I would say to someone, yes, the way is narrow in and the path is not easy it is hard but i'm going to say to you that it's not hard it is hard but it's not hard what do you mean are you nuts no it costs me everything it's costly i have to deny myself i have to lay down my rights i have to i have to deny I have to deny myself I have to pick up a cross that 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 deals with my my fleshly carnal desires and my fleshly carnal appetites and my my, my stinking thinking and I got to allow God to deal with me and I got to be in a sense broken by by God's work in me it's hard and the world the world doesn't understand me and and I've lost friends and and, and I've been falsely accused, and I'm seen by some to be extreme and to be strange and to be weird. It, it's not easy. It's hard, but it's not hard. Because it's filled with life. Because the grace of God is actively working in my life. Because there's joy. Because there's, there's fulfillment through obedient, living in an obedient way. Are you with me? I know you are. It's hard but it's not hard. But you won't know that joy until you come through this very small gate. And then you begin to walk. And what Jesus says is, is a narrow path that will crush you, that will, that will deal with the things, honestly, listen, the deal with the things that need to be dealt with. They'll deal, the Lord will deal with the things that you really do want him to deal with The things deep in your heart, you would say, oh God, why am I like this? Oh God, please help me, free me from this. Or maybe if you're not a believer, you've been living with years of remorse and pain and grief because of abuse, because of whatever. The life of God will get to the root of those and will heal you, but it will be an operation. It will not be easy but it's not hard either because it's filled with grace. Are you with me? He's a loving, healing, merciful God. But I would be lying to you if you're not a believer in Christ today, if you think that what Christian life is is what has been out there so often misrepresented. It does not promise you wealth. It does not promise you perfect health. It does not promise you a life without trouble and problems. It does not. But the God of goodness, of grace, will be with you through it all. And he will see us through to the end. And because we're on this narrow path, it does not feel narrow. It is joyfully, joyfully followed. I was thinking this morning as I was praying and the Lord reminded me of Jeremiah 6.16. I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah 6.16. I love this verse. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest. For your souls. You see, the path that Jesus was speaking of in Matthew 7 is a path that many men and women have walked on before us. Anyone who ever wanted to follow God walked on that path. It's the same path. It's the path that Abraham had to walk, it's the path that Moses had to walk, it's the path that that David had to walk. It's the path that Ruth had to walk. It's the path that Rahab had to walk. And Ezekiel and all of the men and all of the women of God. It's the same path. It's the path that leads to the life. The life that only God can give. The, 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 the book of Hebrews tells us that, that if Abraham had been looking for a way to return from his home, to his home from which he was now on this journey, Trek that he did not know where he was going on a path that he didn't know led to where if he had been looking for a way to go back to where he wanted to go he could have found a way but he said no but he knew that god had a better city for him there's something better and when the lord speaks of destruction that it is the way of the wide path and the large gate. It sounds like a threat. Is Jesus threatening us by saying it's going to lead to destruction? No. The reality is that you were born on that path. When you came into this world, you were born on the path of destruction. And if you read Pilgrim's Progress, you know that in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a city called Vanity, and it's, and he's, it's all within the same city of destruction that he's always within that same city of destruction as he's on his, tra- on his tra- travels. Because we're living in a world that has fallen. And when you were born into this world in sin, I was born, we were all born into the world in sin. So it's not a threat from Jesus. And in fact, what he's doing is he's offering mercy. The gospel of if, if Jesus Christ is the mercy of God offered to man. Because the Lord takes a man or a woman from destruction to life, to true life, out of destruction into true life. So he's not threatening us. Oh, if you continue on that path, it's going to lead you to destruction. No, what he is saying mercifully and lovingly is, you're already on that path. Let me bring you into life. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you peace. I'll give you life. These words of Jesus are not threats. They're not narrow. They're not, they're not exclusive for the sake of being unkind. They're the reality of what it means to enter into life, true life. So what is the message for us as I close? how do I practically think of this today for we who are on the narrow path? First of all, if you are not on the narrow path today yet, the grace of God is offered to you freely. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. I encourage you to put your faith in him, to believe on him. You will be saved and you will come to life. For we who are already in Christ, who have already placed our faith in Christ, what does this mean for us? The first thing I believe is that we need to be careful of the tendency to grow weary on this path. We need to be careful of the world's pressure to relent to a life that is less than a true kingdom life that Jesus is speaking of. To run after the things that the world says lead to life. We need to be careful that we don't buy into that. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy nice things. Doesn't mean we can't have fun. Doesn't mean that we can't do things that are offered to us in this life, in the goodness of this life. It's not saying that at all. We're not living monastic lives. That's not God's intention. But it means we need to guard our hearts so that we don't find ourselves running after something that cannot give life. Right? And wasting our lives on something that is not true life. We need to be careful that our love doesn't become something other than true love. And we need to guard the essence of the faith that's in our hearts. A faith in the cross of Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, the way in is through Christ. The way on is in Christ. The way in is through Christ. The way on is in Christ. Don't be ashamed of the narrowness of the path that you walk. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of the fact that the gate is small and that the path is hard. Don't be ashamed. Don't apologize for it. Just live it. Just live it. Live it in the grace of God because it alone leads to life and that life will be evident and visible through you. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Stand with me. Father, we love you so much. We love you so much because you're so good, Lord. You've been so good to us. What you've given us in Christ is so beyond our comprehension, Father. Thank you that we have come into life, true life. None of us deserved what you've done for us. We were already on the path to destruction, Lord. and Many of us were reveling in it. Many of us were loving that path and running down it joyfully and willingly. And you came and you said, no, you're my child. I'm going to bring you now into true life. I thank you that you've done that for me. I thank you that you brought me, Lord, out of that path, from that path of destruction and death into true life. And I will confess today, Lord, before my brothers and sisters and before the principalities and powers that the path that I'm walking on, though it is hard, is not hard because the grace of God sustains me because the love of God is with me and for me because you've shown yourself to be faithful again and again and again and I thank you that you're healing me I thank you that you continue to set me free I thank you that you continue Lord to manifest in me this life that is life that only you can give thank you father Thank you, Father. Thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for your obedience. Thank you for dying a death that I deserved. Spirit of God, thank you for teaching me what this life is about and for filling me with eternal life. We love you and we honor you. And we thank you today, Lord, for the privilege of worshiping you.